Welcome everyone to the Liquidary Podcast, the place where we get to discuss everything crypto, markets, finance, and more. And don't forget to check out our website, liquidary.com, the one-stop shop for all the information you need about all your favorite crypto and traditional assets. Before we start, please note that all views expressed here are our own and do not represent the opinions of Autowheel GmbH and that this podcast is meant for information and entertainment only and is not financial advice. Hello and welcome everybody. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, today's special guest is Sean and he's been around the crypto block a couple of times, so to speak. So he'll tell you all about it in just a second. Uh, welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me, everyone. Awesome. Um, so maybe to start this meeting a bit, um, let's maybe go a bit into your past and what you have done previously before you joined crypto, um, what brought you to crypto, and then again, what brought you to pivot away from crypto. So maybe you can give some background on yourself a bit. So uh, I have a very long story, but the gist of it is I got my start in crypto in China in 2015, and I did the uh, services for different companies around the world uh, in R&D, fundraising, uh, exchange listing, etc. And that led me to start my own company, Sidekick. So I'm from the States and I have a degree in psychology. And when I finished university, I moved to China two months later uh, to teach English. It was the fastest way to get out of America. At the time, this was uh, a few months before Obama was elected into office, so like uh, summer 2008. And I knew that the economy wasn't looking good, so I had an incentive to leave the country. And uh, so yeah, teaching was a great way to do it. And uh, when I wasn't teaching English, I was teaching myself Chinese. And after a few years, my Chinese was fluent enough that I decided to go down to Southern China and uh, live in what they call the first tier city, Shenzhen. And uh, Shenzhen is on the southern border with Hong Kong, although as we speak now, that a border is very rapidly being erased and Hong Kong is being brought into the mainland, uh, which is kind of sad to see, but that's a different conversation. And uh, while living in Shenzhen, I started off as an HR manager of a local company and got into... Um, like nonprofit event organizations, speech uh, speech events, and uh, training events, and I ended up uh, through that getting into contact with the local city level government. They were supporting our events uh, financially as well as uh, giving me opportunities to give speeches in Chinese, uh, go on TV, and all sorts of really cool opportunities, including training their own government officials to go. Um, like study in the States. They, basically every year they, they sent some of their officials to shadow the Chicago city government. And then they would come back with fresh ideas for how they could improve the management of Shenzhen. Um, so I was training them for a few years. And uh, through that, I also got the ability to train the board of directors for uh, a Chinese company, a manufacturing company that had uh, about 5,000 employees. So that was really cool. Um, and, you know, through all of the things I was doing, I uh, came into contact with people who knew about Bitcoin as early as 2014. One of the people who gave a speech at my event uh, talked about Bitcoin. It didn't really make sense, so I kind of ignored it. Um, 
And then in 2015, another friend of mine came to me and was like, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And uh, so I started to look into it then. And then a few months later, he found an opportunity for me to give a speech about it in Macau, a paid event. And uh, I had another friend who introduced me to a startup uh, in Shenzhen that was looking to get fundraising, uh, equity fundraising, seed round. Um, And so I helped them. I closed a round with them. And I uh, decided to take uh, blockchain much more seriously at that point because I was starting to see money coming in with very little effort. Um, obviously, I had, you know, in order to prepare for the speech, I had put in about three months of effort learning about blockchain. I mean, I spent five, six hours a day learning about, uh, you know, all the technical aspects of how a blockchain works. So, well, specifically how Bitcoin worked. Because back in 2015, there wasn't really anything else. I mean, there were a few smaller coins, but there was really not much of a global community. And uh, so I started the, I started to use the commission I made from um, that fundraising round uh, to do some day trading. And then uh, that CEO asked me to do industry analysis. And so I was uh, contracting for him and uh, other companies started coming to me, asking me for advice and wanting to know about blockchain and how it could benefit their company. And um, then ICOs started to become important. Um, and China was a massive supporter. Well, the government of China wasn't uh, a supporter of the industry, but the citizens were very um, crazy about getting into it. And uh, th- you know, because I could speak Chinese and because I was getting an in in the industry, I was meeting uh, really wealthy and powerful people that were investing in cryptocurrencies and launching their own coins. And um, so I I started to become friends with them and I I could tell you stories, but I won't. Um, And all of this kind of brought me through the advising and the fundraising and the exchange listings and all of that. And around 2018, uh, around April, uh, I realized that the markets were poised for a crash. I could see that the, Um, industry itself was about to evolve in a way that was going to make all of my revenue sources just dry up. And so I decided to start my own company, which is what Sidekick is today. Um, I figured because the market's going to crash, what needs to happen is I need to take the money I've made from the last few years and invest it in my own startup. And I'll do it in the blockchain industry. And I'll use all of my knowledge and my experience to do it better than everyone else has done. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to develop through the crypto winter and I'm going to show the blockchain industry that the second wave of blockchain startups are going to be ones that are focused on generating profit, being sustainable. Because the first wave over the last, you know, seven, eight years were like these we're going to change the world. We're going to save the world from governments and banks. And, you know, they just had these really pie in the sky dreams that had no model for sustainability or profit. And having spent years in the business world in Asia where profit is king, you know, if you don't have money coming in, you don't have a business. Um, So it was just strange for me to see how all of that was happening. So I thought I could do it different and I can show people that if we want blockchain to be successful, if we want to actually change the way these systems work, we need to find out how we can become profitable 
and do it in a way that also makes blockchain and cryptocurrency specifically more easily accessible for the end user. Because until that point, a lot of the products that actually were built, not the ones that were promised, but the ones that were actually built, had really poor UI UX. And I felt a lot of people are, are you know, how do I put it? If we want to get people to use it, it has to be so simple. Like for example, Steve Jobs put a lot of energy into developing the iPad to be so simple that a one-year-old could use it with no instruction. And he succeeded quite well in doing so. What blockchain needed was that. And I tried to, to build that. I mean, I didn't try to build yeah. an iPad, but I, I tried to build that for blockchain. Yeah, so that absolutely makes sense. And I 100% agree with that. Um, especially when you're saying that uh, um, products and... and uh, generally services in the crypto or blockchain ecosystem should get easier to use, like, as you said, for a one-year-old, uh, like the iPad that Steve Jobs invented. Um, so the question there would be basically, uh, I think people were talking about this for years already, at least. Um, I mean, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I wasn't really uh, like uh, going directly into it. This was back in 2011, actually. Um, but then when I, when, when I came so to say, back to crypto and really started digging into it. It was like in 2016. Um, so back then, basically, there already were the discussions about product should get easier to use and stuff like that. And I think we still haven't, or I mean, also the numbers show it, we still haven't seen like a major breakthrough in mass adoption or in people actually using it. Um, and except for exchanges um, and... Yeah, probably except for exchanges who are like uh, have an ongoing um, income stream, at least the big ones. Uh, there, I think, aren't that many startups or companies that are, uh, are have actually a proven market uh, and and a solid income stream. So, what do you think about that? Um, and 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 in how far are you changing that, or in how far do you? believe that you become one of the companies that are actually going to be profitable uh, compared to other ones? Well, the problem that I saw was that, okay, so when ICOs were, were booming, let's put aside the blatant scammers and focus on the people that actually wanted to use the money to develop something and say that the problem I noticed with almost all of them was that the, the founder was a tech minded person. They were probably the ones that was going to code the product. And the problem with that is they knew what they wanted to build, but they didn't understand how to communicate what they were building to the potential user. So on one hand, the user doesn't know what the product is for or why. And the, the UI UX of the product didn't work well. And so the user got frustrated and, and gave up. Another problem, which is one of the problems I faced in the early days of Sidekick, was that as we were developing our blockchain, we came to see that the market didn't really want more coins. Instead, people wanted to use the coins they had already purchased. And so Sidekick went from being this, we have our own blockchain, 
to we have a wallet embedded in our messaging platform that allows you to pay with the currencies you already have. Well, unfortunately to say after the virus hit, we realized we had to pivot so that now we don't even have a wallet. Now, granted we have the wallet, but it's hidden from the users because our users are no longer end users. They're now business users. And unfortunately, there isn't many use cases for business yet. I have a few ideas. I'm not going to say them here for obvious reasons. I think there's tr tremendous potential in them down the road if there's enough money uh, around for compliance and things like that. But uh, at least for now, we are not a blockchain company anymore. Right. But, I mean, uh, sorry, just to jump in there for everybody who's uh, interested or doesn't know Sidekick yet. Uh, maybe you can, like, that everybody's on the same page, give a quick, like, uh, introduction uh, to, to Sidekick so that everybody gets it. Yeah, sure. So Sidekick was originally a messaging payments and e-commerce marketplace that was modeled on being like a WeChat for the West, because when you look at Western companies, they tend to do one thing and one thing only. When you look at Eastern companies, they tend to do everything for one country. I wanted to build something that could do many different things for many different countries, using crypto as the basis for globalization. So, like I said, originally we wanted our own coin, and even after the blockchain was built and running, we realized the market doesn't want more coins, so we burned our own blockchain, in favor of building a multi-currency wallet, which we have. And then because of the virus, we realized that the world doesn't really need another messenger. So we decided to pivot towards business so we could be a business to business company and compete more with Slack and Microsoft Teams where the focus is on helping remote teams to manage themselves on a, a you know daily basis. And so for the last four months, we've been working on that pivot. Um, and during that time, we've hidden the wallet from the users, like I said. Awesome. So now that, that we have basically covered uh, uh, what, you're do, uh, what you're doing at Sidekick, um, maybe let's go back a bit to, uh, to where we were previously. Um, Maybe you can <clears throat> kind of uh, give us some some thoughts on 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 your pivot away from from blockchain, also in terms of Sidekick, and and then also you personally. So uh, we met uh, both in I think it was 2017 or 16 when we were uh, working uh, with the same client basically, um, and from that basically um, I got to know you, and and then also I, I kind of. Uh, so how you pivoted away for, from crypto mm, and I think you have quite some controversial thoughts on it so maybe maybe give us some some kind of uh, idea what you what you think about the cryptocurrency ecosystem in its current form um, and what might be some flaws that need to be fixed sure so I'll start off with my uh, business view and how it relates to sidekick like I said when we first started out, we thought there was a the potential to do an ICO. 
we put a lot of money and time into a white paper and getting a legal opinion and thinking about how the token economics could work. And then this was, this was a good year and a year and a half almost that we spent doing all of these things. I mean, obviously they didn't take all that time, but we worked on them, you know, piece by piece. And as we got into 2019, we started to see that the market was really sour on crypto in general because a lot of people had lost up to 90% or more of their crypto holdings in, you know, the, the end of 2017 to, you know, mid-summer 2018. And so it became obvious to me that doing an ICO was a bad idea economically and it was a bad idea uh, politically because the SEC had made it very clear even back in 2018 that they were gunning for companies that did ICOs. And I realized that doing an ICO was probably going to come back to bite me in the butt later on. So that was a, it, it was an incentive to drop the blockchain. Just if we don't have a blockchain, the SEC is going to be unlikely to target us because we're not going to be doing anything that's of interest to them. Um, so I think there's a problem in the crypto space with that or in that every government has their own way of interpreting law related to how to manage crypto. Some countries call it a commodity. Some of them call it money. Some call it legal tender. Uh, some tax it for capital gains, et cetera, et cetera. And because there's such a varied uh, reaction across the different countries, it makes it quite difficult to deal with compliance. Because if you think about it, a lot of the crypto companies or projects that I came across, they were like, you know, screw the government, screw the banks, let's, you know, build our own system. And the reality is the, the companies that raised money in ICOs and the companies that got VC funding for their blockchain companies, where do you think that money came from? It came from the banks. It came from the governments. It didn't come from mom and pop. It, it didn't come from you and I. Sure, we gave them $100 here and there, but the $5 million they raised, you know, 90 plus percent of it came from one or two big wealthy private individuals and probably from banks and hedge funds. So the system that these companies claimed to want to destroy were in fact the ones funding them. So the, the fact that they were unwilling to admit that they were kowtowing to the people with money in, in essence uh, is quite a joke. And you know, I, I don't think most people are willing to admit those things, especially the massive communities that they spent all that money building to try to convince them on the value of their coin. When in reality, they could just use Bitcoin. What do they need a cryptocurrency for? You know, so there, there's a lot of individual issues with uh, the crypto space and it would take hours to really express. But that's the gist of my opinion. Yeah, uh, absolutely agreed. Um, so. You were saying basically that um, those people funding the companies uh, or the uh, the ICOs where people had this kind of very liberal or almost anarchy uh, thoughts that um, like they're going to disrupt the system and stuff like that um, are actually funded by those uh, 
who run the system. So um, maybe when when it comes to, to, to blockchain companies also, I personally had the feeling that in most cases it actually became centralized by by doing an or by doing an ICO or running a company. Like um, there are very few companies that are actually having like a real blockchain application where you don't have like uh, where in many cases you don't even have like a DAP as so a decentralized application, but just like a uh, I don't know a, a centralized platform where you have a token that that runs on it. Um, and your point is, is is absolutely fair that um and, and back in 2017 uh, or 16 or 18 whatever um i know this question when you asked uh, why do you need a token it usually it was not very welcome when you asked that so um and then uh yeah many many companies basically uh were, were just building like a centralized application uh and selling it like like a decentralized one with the password blockchain basically um so and right now we are basically seeing with DeFi many projects popping up that that um, like offer all this kind of banking um, um, like uh, banking features like lending, borrowing, um, also trading, DEXs and stuff like that that are built on smart contracts. And I think when you mentioned Bitcoin, absolutely a fair application, but but I think or at least in my opinion, Bitcoin is missing features like smart contracts and stuff like that, uh, which you can do on, yeah, uh, Ethereum or, or other smart contract platforms. Um, so do you see a use case for that? Um, and, and also for, for DeFi, so is this basically a step in the right direction that you're building decentralized applications that um, are in its ideal form, not having like a back, uh, a, a back door where, where some centralized party can, can pull basically a killer switch um, or or is this also more of the same in your opinion? So for Sidekick specifically, the idea was never to build something decentralized because my view is that it is impossible to build a company that is profitable and be decentralized. It is impossible to develop something that's decentralized and walk away and expect people with no financial incentivization to continue to develop it. If, if Mark Zuckerberg built Facebook for a year, released it to the world and said goodbye, do you think everyone would have continued to develop it for free? No, people work on money. They want to get paid and they need a leader who tells them the direction that they're going in. And the only reason that Bitcoin still exists is because Satoshi had a really strong vision and he executed it before he disappeared. You know, if you look at Ethereum now, it's taken them years to get things done because the teams don't agree with each other, just like Bitcoin experienced years ago. The, you know, there was a core group of people, then there were the miners, and then there's the users, and you have the exchange platforms. You have all these different groups of people that have different interests, and they'll do whatever it takes to make sure that their interests are the ones that are executed. And without someone who's a strong leader to manage something, it's just not going to succeed. And yeah. I even have my doubts that Bitcoin will succeed long-term because we have problems like quantum computing that are cropping up very, very quietly, but quickly that nobody's really talking about. Mm, 
Well, for, for the quantum computing argument, there, when, when, you, when that's the argument against Bitcoin, basically you also are completely uh, fucked up when you have online banking and stuff like that because everything relies on uh, uh, AES-256 uh, uh, hashing algorithms. And once a quantum computer can crack those, every web applica application or blockchain or, or any any encryption in general is basically uh useless so um absolutely yeah so when that happens basically there there needs to be a, there needs to be a new kind of um yeah a new kind of way to secure platforms and there are work there are people working on quantum proof uh, algorithms i believe um and i think there is like uh, uh like a a um theory that you have at least 10 or 15 years or so um for for hashing algorithms to kind of um evolve and, and and transition to to a quantum proof proof system quantum computing is moving so much faster than anyone realizes and they don't tell you until they've been successful and by then they've actually been successful for several months at least if not a year and things are moving so fast that nobody has the ability to manage the speed of movement anymore. You wake up one day and one thing is true. You wake up the next day and that thing is no longer true because something else is true now. And I'm not talking about fake news. I'm talking about something that was, that was not obsolete today is obsolete tomorrow. Literally, that's how fast the world is moving these days. And it's only getting faster. And, you know, I think it's not, I, I don't, I don't understand the technology so much to say that it's not, but to say that it's impossible for someone without a quantum computer to build a quantum proof algorithm. But I can say that I feel like the probability is quite low that without access to a quantum computer that you have the ability to understand how the quantum computer will hack you and therefore how to protect against it. I feel like you need a quantum computer to develop a quantum proof algorithm. And, you know, I, I just feel like all fiat systems and all crypto systems are at risk, no matter what. It doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I think that's just, that, that's the whole point, right? This whole thing is an entirely different can of worms that we would open with this, right? So, like Tom said, we're basically fucked on many levels when that happens, right? So, I think... Um, you know, average Joe's um, $10 Bitcoin wallet being hacked is literally the least of her problems once this happens. So I think this also wow. goes um, hand in hand with like cybersecurity on like a, a, a bigger level, like cyber terrorism, for example. I mean, just imagine if some somebody um, were to mess with, um, you know, um, some type of really, really crucial infrastructure, right? So we would run out of, I don't know, electricity or, um, or, or things like that. So I, I think that is a problem, yes. But I think that this is definitely not just a problem for the crypto space. And I, I think um, that we need to work on this um, in general. Um, and I, I think that people are already uh, preparing for this. But just like you said, um, a lot of stuff is happening behind the scenes without the public even knowing about it. But I think that goes for both camps. So um the attack side and the protection do? side. I think right? everyone 
I think everyone should have some gold. And I don't mean gold stocks. I mean, own some physical gold. That's your only hedge against a quantum computing hack. Good old analog. Yeah, I guess that that really depends on um, the level of fuckness <laughs> we're talking about. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, gold is amazing for sure as an asset, I, I think. Um, but it is not very, um, you know, handy. And um, it, it's very hard to store safely as well. And to, um, it's, it's not very fungible, right? So these are all things that um, also, also cause problems, right? So, and you, you can't just... Um, gold can be fungible. There's companies that sell uh, pure gold cards and you can like... Uh, you can kind of cut the piece of gold and then you can use it. And there are small denominations. It's like $30 per little piece or something. And you can buy a card that's, I guess, like a thousand dollars worth of it or something like that. True, true, true. Um, for sure. Um, I just think that um, w what is important when we're talking about gold, like you said, is um, that you have actual physical gold because We've heard those scandals about people, you know, selling gold um, on paper um, without any actual gold backing it up. So I think it, the safest way would really be to have actual gold, just like you said, yeah. There's actually been a scam that was uncovered, I think, a year ago where people were putting, um, I think it was tin in the middle of gold bars. Oh um, man! The, out, the outside was real gold, and the inside had been like carved out and then filled in with, I think it was tin or aluminum. Or yeah, something. that's sneaky. Yeah. Oh man! So you think gold is the only or the best hedge, or can you think of anything else? I well, so the one of the problems with gold is that, like Bitcoin, it's priced in dollars. So. As we're seeing right now, the price of Bitcoin has, has reached 10,000. The price of gold has breached its all-time high of 1915 or whatever, 1920 today. And I don't believe this is because people are scared. I think this is because the purchasing power of the dollar is collapsing. And so by holding on to things like gold and Bitcoin, at least in the short term, especially Ethereum, Ethereum's doing quite well, uh, it gives you the opportunity to hedge against fiat. However, if something happens and systems go down, your crypto is useless. You know, if we have no electricity or if we have no internet, your crypto is useless. If you if those systems go down and you have physical gold, you can still use the gold. You just don't know how much it's worth. So, you know, the, the problem with commodities being priced in dollars is that the price fluctuates. And, uh, I, you know, as long as we continue to use a fiat system, we're always going to price things in that system, where in the past things were priced in gold. You would say, all right, give me one, you know, gold nugget and maybe the gold nugget was a gram or two grams. Um, and so I think because gold and silver have been a go-to uh, money, a system of money for thousands of years, that 
it only makes sense that when there's trouble, we return to that. But if that is that what's going to happen, I'm not sure. The last time a government tried to go back to gold was Libya in the beginning of the Arab Spring. So that's a different story. Right. I, uh, yeah, uh, it definitely is. Um, and and in my opinion, for um, like the problem with gold or, or, or having it as a currency is obviously transferability, um, like, yeah, for obvious reasons. Um, and and then you have the option, of course, for for like a gold-backed currency. Um, the the question there is just on the one hand, you you still have like a centralized party that still issues that currency um, and controls it basically. And for that, uh, yeah, in my opinion, that's that's just not the perfect form of, of money. Basically, uh, when you when you want to have uh, a currency, you want it to. Uh, basically be separated from from a central entity where like 20 people go go like in the ECB uh, go into a room and, and make decisions uh, and print more money um, or, or whatever um, of course financial freedom from governmental organizations or or companies that are private and for-profit that pretend to be governmental organizations <laughs> the Federal Reserve <laughs> you know th the problem is we want this freedom, but we're never going to have it as long as governments exist. I'm not saying get rid of governments, they have their purpose. I'm saying as long as governments exist, they will seek to completely dominate the financial market because that's how they stay in control. And, you know, a lot of governments are talking now about backing or supporting a uh, you know, digital currency to get away from the cash. And they can say, oh, the virus makes cash dirty. Let's get rid of cash. Okay, now we're digital. And then they, they have even more control. So I think governments want to have, you know, a central bank digital currency. But the problem then goes to, okay, the government's still in control, but it's a digital currency. Have we made progress? No, not at all. In fact, we've lost more freedom in the process because with cash, you can carry it wherever you go and the government doesn't know that you have it. You know, I can go to the bank here and I can withdraw US dollars and the US government doesn't know I have it. I'm not committing any crimes. I'm just saying legally, the government can't see me withdrawing dollars because they don't have access to it. However, if I were to send someone a digital US dollar, of course they're gonna see it. It's their system. They have control over all of the logs, all of the history, everything. You can't escape it. With cash, you have the freedom to go somewhere else. You have the freedom to pay in cash. The government can't track that. And the government hates that. It's scary to them that they can't see it because in their eyes, I could be funding terrorism and they wouldn't know. Obviously, right. I'm not funding terrorism. I'm just saying as an example, <laughs> you know, yep. people are crying for, for digital currencies to replace fiat, but the reality is there is no such thing as freedom. Freedom is an illusion and the governments are in control. No matter what people want, we're never going to have that. And I think Bitcoin and Ethereum are probably the only chances of that. I think it's possible we may have a dual system in the future where 
people are stuck in their digital banks, uh, a digital, a central bank digital currency, or they're stuck in their crypto, but there's no way in and no way out. And so the people that have crypto now have the freedom to go between, but the people who don't have crypto before they're forced into the digital system will have no ability to get out. And that means the government can tax them whatever they want. They can take as much money as they want. They can fee, you know, take fees for not having enough money like banks do. I mean, in essence, the government can get rid of the bank by being the one that administers everything. You know, so there's a lot of potential for corruption and uh, dystopian control in this regard. It's quite scary, to be honest. Yeah, uh, agreed. And uh, this is like a very uh, difficult or, or uh, yeah, uh, difficult path to go. So there is like on the one hand, there is a central bank digital currency, a CBDC, where you have like, as you said, complete, uh, uh, completely like um, uh, complete surveillance system basically for, for the government. On the other hand, you have coins uh, like Bitcoin, um, which lacks, uh, in my opinion, um, anonymity. Um, there are alternatives to that, uh, like Monero. Um, but I think they're also like talking about implementing some kind of, um, yeah, uh, some kind of uh, privacy features on, on on Bitcoin. So this is kind of kind of kind of uh, like the question where where is going in the future? I mean. I could very well think of like Bitcoin being like a, uh, or as it is marketed right now by, by Bitcoin maximalists, that Bitcoin is kind of a digital gold and a store of value and kind of become a, a reserve currency next to gold, basically. Um, I agree with you that it's probably very unlikely, at least for the time we are living, that Bitcoin or, or any other cryptocurrency becomes like the main uh, medium of exchange used by, by a population. Um, Obviously, there are some some small towns or so or so where where they where they might might be using this. I think Sophie, I think you shared some article uh, last week with me uh, about a village I don't know somewhere uh, that uses um, uses Bitcoin as a currency. But yeah, yeah except from that, um, I doubt that there uh, will be like complete uh com like like cryptocurrency becoming completely a, a medium of exchange for for a country as a as a whole basically so maybe maybe let's let's kind of close this uh this talk about uh, uh decentralization and 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 uh um what i would like to to talk to you about uh, is also the the exchange side because this is where where we work together and uh where we also met so just uh, I'll just throw throw some some statements out and you you say what you think. Um, what what we have seen over the last uh, two years, especially, is that many exchanges pop up, um, and actually you can go to sites like um, Code Canyon if you know that. It's like a, a site where you can buy some templates for websites, and you can buy also cryptocurrency exchange templates. Just buy it for fifty dollars, uh, host it on on your web server. Uh, deploy some uh, bots that create some fake volume, uh, and basically you have a, a, an exchange in the top 20 in coin market cap with like 200, 300 dollars of. If you know some coding, you you spend like two or 300 dollars, and you're basically uh, having an exchange that does I don't know a billion or or 100 million dollars in volume. And we've seen many of those popping up, and in my opinion, that's that's a huge concern um, because it also 
in traditional finance that's not regulated uh, or in traditional finance that's wash trading and highly legal. In crypto, we have seen some, some countries acting against it, but not that many. And I don't think that it's like uh, on top of the radar of many uh, regulators. So what's your thoughts on this? Um, do you think that's, that's particularly harmful or just a side effect, basically? I think people are going to look for the lowest hanging fruit. And exchanges are the fastest way to make money. So the fact that you can buy a template does not surprise me at all. Is it harmful? It's only harmful if people are falling for a scam. If they're starting a legitimate business and being compliant in the local in the local jurisdiction, then no, I see no problem with it. However, if they uh, don't invest in security and the funds are not secure, then yeah, of course it's harmful. But you know, there, there's a difference between scammers, lazy people, and legitimate entrepreneurs. And I think it's impossible to tell the difference between them at this point in time. Right. So, I mean, what, what, what I believe is that when you have these fake volume exchanges that people are uh, looking on coin market cap or other other sites like that uh, and see like there is a huge volume on that coin uh, and they think like that's a great great investment especially in 2017 we've seen that where people were just freaking out about some volume that's displayed on these ranking sites uh, and people were just blindly going to the exchange uh, open an account with them uh, and just bought whatever whatever is there uh, without liquidity and without transparency and as you said probably also with poor security uh, standards so yeah um, I believe that that that's actually a huge concern um, and also it's driven because of, uh, of obviously greed and, and, and the exchange listing stuff because the exchanges like want to make money on, on listings obviously um, and that's why pump the volume up so that people might think that uh, that it's worth listing on their exchange, obviously. Yeah, I really also think it's a lot about greed because like you said in the beginning, Sean, um, it started out as this new, like very political, very, you know, ideological saying as like, yeah, we're going to be, you know, we're going to create a whole new society and everything's going to be better and we're going to, you know, um, bank the unbanked and stuff like that. But then, especially with the ICO craze, all people saw was money, 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 how to make money fast, Lambos everywhere. You know, it, it was it was horrible. And I think that's just the, the problem. And I mean, you have a, a background in psychology. So it it's just human psychology, I think, that we are so prone to um, abuse such new system or new inventions if we smell profits right and i, I think that is what happened um also to this space unfortunately and this, in some yeah. ways still happening and now it's it's kind of starting a bit with the with the DeFi craze so there's just like these waves of like new crazes i think well having lived in china during the ico craze i got to see it firsthand i met several people who went from being basically broke to making several million dollars over the course of six months, just uh, buying ICOs in the pre-sale and then dumping on the ICO, making 10, 20 X. Um, 
I met one guy in particular, he was 26 and he started out mining when he was in college and he went into uh, like investing and he bought IOTA when it was in the pre-sale, I think. And he sold around $3 and he made about a hundred million US dollars um, to name one. And another friend uh, was the founder of uh, China's largest crypto media outlet. And they actually got shut down twice by, by the Chinese government. It was kind of funny, um, funny but sad. And I remember he came to visit me in China and I got a peek of his wallet when we were together one day. And uh, at the time he had several million dollars worth of Ethereum. And then like six months later or eight months later, it was basically worth nothing. And he and a lot of them were greedy and they thought everything was gonna keep going up. So they didn't sell, they didn't diversify and they walked away with nothing. And uh, you know, I think it's it's a lesson for them because a lot of them were suffering. They were depressed for a long time because they had come into money and then lost it because they didn't, you know, take measures to protect themselves. And I think a lot of people around the world, unfortunately, are in the same boat with them. So this industry has good things and it has bad things for for my business it has allowed me to very easily manage a remote team of 10 in different countries and i pay them all in crypto and that way we don't have to deal with you know uh, interbank transfers and swift and uh, you know these days long waiting and having to keep money in a bank account things like that so you know, I think there's a tremendous amount of value that crypto can bring to the lives of businesses and individuals, but I just don't think we're there yet. I think we need probably a few more years to be able to provide something that entices companies to want to use it. And I think we may have the idea for how to do it. Um, but again, like I said, there's a lot of red tape and it's very expensive to get licensing and to be compliant in various jurisdictions around the world. And that's one of the reasons why people don't do it. It's because the barrier to entry is so expensive that basically only like Binance and the Winklevoss twins can afford it. Right, yeah, I agree. Um, and when you want to kind of open up a shop or something, a local, local shop, and you want to accept cryptocurrencies, for example, you shouldn't have to deal with regulators or stuff like that because when you, for example, accept Monero or Zcash with privacy features, uh, I think at least in Austria it is like that, that you need to go to authorities and check with them if that's all right. And in most case it, uh, cases, uh, it actually isn't. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of work to do. Um, well, I mean, um, in that yeah. regard, the government, if you live in that country, that government has the right to tell you yes or no. And if you want to continue living in that country, you have no choice but to listen to what they say or face jail time. And so the, the only work that needs to be done is to convince the governments to be more lenient and allow these things to happen because if you tax it, then people will be okay with using it. But if it's a criminal activity, it'll never be mainstream if people are afraid to use it. 
And that's why countries like the US are on the path towards legalizing marijuana because they realize like Colorado, for example, in their first month of having uh, legal marijuana for recreational use, they got, I think it was 5 million US dollars in tax revenue in the first month. I mean, they do 40 to $60 million a year in revenue as one state. So why make things illegal and make people, you know, want to use it more? Just legalize it and tax it. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so you said there are two options you have, comply with the laws uh, or, or leave the country. I think there is also the option that, uh, as you said now with Mariana, that you can just legalize it and fight for legalizing it. And I think this is, this is what, what people are doing in, in crypto. Uh, they are, they're lobbying for, 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 uh, for Bitcoin and for, for cryptocurrencies. And this is very helpful, I think. Um, if we wouldn't have that, uh, probably governments uh, would still have this kind of impression that that this is some kind of dirty money that you don't want to touch, while it, while in in reality fiat and especially cash is what's used by criminals and not Bitcoin. Um, but but fair enough. Um, so maybe to round this this kind of uh, podcast up, um, let's 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 talk a bit about Sidekick in the end. Um, what's your current progress? Um, I'm I'm in your Telegram group and you you regular post uh, updates there. Um, so maybe you can give a bit of overview what's your current progress is. I think you have already uh, at least a beta version of your apps out there. Um, so yeah, maybe you can give a bit uh, about the progress there. Yeah, so when we started, we were a mobile first company. And because of the virus, we pivoted to remote work. And a lot of work that gets done for a company is done on a desktop or a laptop. So we had to shift focus from developing on mobile first to desktop first. So uh, we've moved our developers over to developing on Windows and uh, we don't have a beta on Windows quite yet. However, we're actively developing uh, new core functions. The, the core aspect of our platform is chat because we believe that email is useless and the way that Slack handles chats where you have channels based on a specific topic related to your business is a fantastic way to manage. We use them ourselves, but there's a lot of things that Slack is missing that we think we can add value to by building it ourselves natively. And so uh, what we're building now is a file manager as, as one of our features um, that has a lot more functionality than what Slack does. I won't get into those details right now. Um, our task manager, we've just finished. Our voice and video calling, we've just finished on Android for both. We're about to do them on Windows now. We'll be done before the end of August. Um, and then we're getting into the development of the actual sub-channel architecture like Slack has right now as well. Um, and then one of the things that really differentiates us from Slack is we're building a visual space, a virtual office layer that sits on top of the chat layer. What I mean by that is a lot of companies have been forced to work remote for the first time ever. And a lot of their employees have been forced to work remote for the first time ever. And a lot of them, based on our research and a lot of uh, data that's come out from surveys in the last few years shows that in general, when someone is working remotely, they feel more isolated and sometimes they're less efficient 
And sometimes this can lead to uh, dissatisfaction and depression. And we felt that a way we could help to combat this is by creating a, a 2D top-down view of an office space that resembles what it's like to work in an office. And so you can see your teammates and your bosses and everybody moving around this office in real time based on the channels that they're chatting in or the calls that they're on with the other team members. So in this way, we like to say that we help companies to manage and view their company move in real time. Because when you're moving through the channels, when you're chatting, when you're on calls, things like that, this is real time synchronous communication. And a lot of companies that are working remotely, their team members are in sometimes in different places. For example, Sidekick specifically, we have 10 uh, team members and we're spread across four different time zones. And so some of our communication is synchronous, some of our communication is asynchronous. And having this visual layer makes it easier for us to know where people are and what they're doing without needing to micromanage them and bug them about what they're doing. Um, at Sidekick specifically, we don't uh, track people's time. We, they're, they're paid on a salary and we give them specific tasks to do. And we, we measure their performance based on, did they get those tasks done? And so, you know, we know that not every company is the same, that every company works differently, but we have a vision for what the remote work space should look like and how it should feel. And we think that our vision provides a much stronger method for companies to manage the daily needs of their growing companies that Slack just doesn't offer. And that's what Sidekick is about, helping your company to manage itself in real time, across time zones or not, remote or not. Awesome. Sounds great. Okay, well, um... Is there any, anything else you want to add, Sean? Any last things nope. that you really want our listeners to know? I'm satisfied. I thought that was a good interview. Hopefully Great. you cut it off before that last statement. <laughs> no. Um, well, I think then we can, yeah, come to a conclusion and say thanks so much for taking the time today. It's really maybe, interesting. Uh, uh, maybe maybe just give uh, give the listeners uh, like a uh, overview where they can go to to find yourself, uh, your Telegram group and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, if, if people want to join, they can just look for uh, Sidekick app, S I D E K I C K A P P on Telegram, and uh, we can chat more there if they're interested in knowing more about what we do. Yeah, sounds great. Sure. And all of the info will, of course, also be in the description. So you can find it there. Awesome. <laughs> so thanks again. And um, have a great rest of the day, everyone. Whichever time zone you're in. <laughs> yeah, cheers. You too. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in. And don't forget to check out liquidary.com to get all the information about all your favorite assets. Please also check out all of our social media channels. And if you've liked this podcast, consider sharing it with a friend. Talk to you soon and so long. Have a bullish day.